Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rock. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, bilingual brains, atomic clocks, and headlights. In addition, we'll be joined by Lindsay Levine, who will talk about the hydrogen economy. Also, we'll find out what nitric oxide does. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Not too bad, not too bad. How's the week going so far? <laughs> you know, every week that I'm involved in science is a great week indeed. Yeah, I love science. I vote for science. I, uh, If I could vote for science to be my uh, mistress, I would. And But, you know, I love science. Science doesn't love me, though. <laughs> Do you think science is blonde? <laughs> I think science is more of a Marianne, a Marianne than a ginger. It's one of the great unsolved problems, really, of science. But then science changes, right? So you could have a different type of science every day. Oh, yeah, that's even better, right? <laughs> playing the field of science. Well, uh, what field of science are we playing today? Global warming and the Kyoto Protocol. That's almost, that's the greatest field of science really there is. <laughs> yeah. The Kyoto Protocol, is that even still existing after the U.S. Uh, sort of turned its back on it? Turns out Russia has adopted it. Russia's adopted so it. So now yeah. the pressure's on for the U.S. to put it on, because oh. if they don't, by uh, 2012, it will uh, expire and everyone else will just get out of it. So we should definitely try to support it before uh, it completely falls apart. Right, well, that's, we should have supported it, you know, four years ago, really. But yeah. <laughs> so what administration didn't like it, I guess. Yeah, I'm not sure who that was. I guess the um, the bigger implication is that, according to the Kyoto Protocol, we're only target to reduce our CO2 emissions by 5% mm-hmm. from what it is from 1990. Okay. This actually does not do very much. So it turns out that since the start of the Industrial Revolution, CO2 levels have gone from 280 ppm to about close to 380 right now. Oh, wow. And it's actually the rate of increase is getting faster and faster. Mm-hmm. And a lot of uh, climatologists feel that if we can maintain it at below 450 or 550 ppm's, mm-hmm. we may be able to avert the worst possible kinds of disasters, although right. it, the effects are already being felt right now. And in order to even stabilize at that point, we would have to begin drastic reductions of up to two-thirds of our emissions right now. That's uh, quite considerable. I mean, uh, I don't think we really have the infrastructure to do that. <laughs> no, and the other problem is all these thermal countries want to develop the right. same way we have, and that means they would have to use energy 10 times per person as they're doing right now. This leaves a lot of uncertainty as to what to do, but I mean, the Kyoto Protocol is certainly a first step towards anything, Mm -hmm. because that's the only mandate or protocol that's been specified so far. Yeah, I mean, uh, I agree. I think a lot of people agree. We just have to get uh, the guy at the top to agree. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, maybe I'll call him up. We'll see what he says. Maybe you got to pray a little harder. (laughs) Yeah, you know, he's busy as well. (laughs) Um... All right, well, if people want to find out more about that. Uh, They can go to the recent edition of The New Scientist. Cool.
All right, Frank, so how many languages do you speak? Yes, around three and a half or so. Three and a half. Wow, that's uh, quite impressive. Not impressive enough to get some girls, I guess. <laughs> well, you have to learn the right words in the language. <laughs> you know. yeah, I'm just a jack of all trades. Yeah, I suppose so. I thought the the first words that people usually learn in, the, in a different language are the swear words. Oh, yeah. That uh, doesn't seem to help, though. No, I don't think so. <laughs> some people go for that. I'm not sure. <laughs> anyway, so uh, a group of researchers are actually interested in uh, why some people are able to acquire languages better than others. Is it because they have the right neural pathways? Uh, uh, well, that's part, uh, at least part of it. So uh, a team led by Michelle Chee, who was a cognitive neuroscientist at the Singapore General Hospital, tested 30 adults who were trying to learn um, Chinese and uh, trying to figure out what parts of the brain were activated when they were learning different languages. And what, they, what she found was that the people who were best able to acquire the language had activation in a lot, lot more of their brain. So actually, a lot of their brain was working much heavily, uh, except for one part of the brain, which was called the left insular cortex. Uh-huh. And uh, so she's just basically suggesting that um, compared to people who are able to acquire languages better, uh, these people have more inefficiencies in how how their brain is working because parts some parts of the brain are overactive and some parts of the brain are less active. Right. And the parts of the brain that are less active are actually very important for storing new, new words. So the absence of activity in these regions makes it easier for you to learn languages. Well, no, I'm actually suggesting that you want activation in those areas, oh, but okay. these people don't have activations in those areas. I see. But they have activations in other areas which are perhaps less important and perhaps uh, confuse the issue. So is there some psychoneuro... Uh, <laughs> uh, techniques to activate these regions? Yeah, that's a good question, and uh, I'm sure uh, they'll probably try and develop that. Maybe like they have these things all like called transcranial magnetic stimulation, which maybe they could pulse that together with uh, Ooh, transcranial <laughs> stimulation. Yeah, and uh, you'll see it on the market, and uh, you know you can learn languages in a flash. <laughs> maybe I'll market that. It's a good idea. <laughs> so if anyone wants to get this, can they go on eBay right now? Uh, well, they will once I market it. How about that? But if not, they can uh, take a look. Uh, they can build their own by going to the recent edition of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Oh, our favorite journal. Indeed. I think with it all the time. <laughs> That's, uh, I think, what most men do, actually. <laughs> So, Charles, how's your internal clock working? Uh, it must be working uh, very poorly because I uh, go to sleep at 5 in the morning and I wake up at 1 in the afternoon. <laughs> but you always get up at the same time, right? Yeah, well, uh, almost uh, exactly, yeah. I don't know how small your uh, your atomic or uh, your internal <laughs> clock is. <laughs> I'm not sure if I have an atomic clock, but if I did have one, <laughs> it would be pretty small. Uh, it turns out that the uh, National Institute of Science and Technology has devised a, uh, a tiny atomic clock on the size of a grain of, of rice. That's cool. So now I can get my name written on a grain of rice and an atomic clock. As well. Yeah, and implant it into your, uh, your cortex, I guess. Uh, well, that would be one place I could implant it. This is the smallest atomic clock device so far, but I think it's a step towards devising components which they can use in chips for uh, cell phones, uh, okay. GPS systems, radios, and uh, other devices. Very cool. How about watches? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> seems like the most likely source to put it in. It's accurate to one second for um, 126 years. Okay, well, that'll remind me to rewind it the next 126 years then. <laughs> yeah, since it'll be off by a second. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it basically works by using a tiny cesium vapor cell, some semiconductor lasers, color detectors, and by measuring the vibrational frequency of the cesium atom and calibrating it to the, uh, the quartz crystals, mm -hmm. it creates this uh, super finely tuned clock when it consumes like 73 milliwatts, which is uh, what most common uh, quartz crystals oh, wow. these days. So you won't have to change a battery ever. No. <laughs> Pretty much. Just shake it around and uh, you got the power. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> well, if people want to, I guess, pick up this uh, atomic clock on a grain of rice, when can they expect to find that? It'll probably take a few more years to commercialize it, but uh, you can read about it in the, the August 30th edition of Applied Physics Letters.
All right, and finally, Frank, uh, do you have head lice? Head lice? I think I had them when I was in the second or third grade. Okay. And uh, ever since, I've been pretty clean. That's uh, very encouraging. I guess bathing helps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I try to do that. Yeah, I, I would too as well. <laughs> uh, but, of course, this was a uh, pernicious blight for uh, many modern or early humans as well. You mean actually killed people too? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they're sort of the cause of a lot of disease as well, right, uh-huh. which uh, spread. Uh, but apparently they can also tell uh, about us us about the evolution of humans. Wow, so we've been uh, coexisting with them somehow? Yeah, well... Symbiotically? <laughs> I'm, not, so symbiotically? I'm not sure if it's so symbiotically unless... Uh, you know, they provide companionship or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, so it turns out that uh, there's two species of lice that exist currently that uh, w- exist on humans, right? And uh, the fact that there's two species gives some indication for how modern humans evolved. So there's a number of different theories uh, related to how humans might have evolved um, initially. Uh, one is, of course, that they sort of spread out of Africa and sort of took over different populations. Right. One is that they evolved in very specific locations, right? Uh-huh. Uh, the fact that there's two, two species of lice suggests that modern humans evolved from Africa, they spread across the globe, and they interbred with other archaic humans, but only that the African genes persisted. Because it suggests that uh, initially there must have been like a separation of the two species of groups of humans, which allowed the lice to breed separately, Uh and then later when the African population came over, they took over, but the lice had already um, diverged. Yeah, I thought humans believed in civil rights and, you know, the (laughs) the rights of other species. Uh, Well, I'm not sure if uh, life has quite a uh, uh, good lobby in in Washington, (laughs) so... Uh, they may not have time to uh, <laughs> to unify. So I, I guess this is just another indication of how the uh, the human uh, evolutionary tree may have evolved through the ages. Uh, this is certainly one indication. Uh, it's actually. Um According to one researcher, Michael Wolpoff, he calls it a fringe explanation. But uh, other people, such as Chris Stringer, think, well, that's actually quite interesting. It's sort of uh, an indirect uh, support for one hypothesis of modern human evolution. Wow, and all this time I thought it was the moon that was controlling our destiny. (laughs) It's the moon and the sun. (laughs) Sex time and power, right? Indeed. (laughs) So very fascinating work, and uh, now you can add lice to uh, the history of humans. So if anyone's interested in this, they can uh, take a look. It was published in the recent edition of the Public Library of Science, Biology. Oh, our upcoming favorite journal. That's our next favorite journal, PLOS. <laughs> and that is all for our look at current developments in the world of science this week. This is Berkeley Grouch you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Lindsay Levine will join us to talk about the hydrogen economy. So stay tuned. <laughs> to Berkeley Crocs. Well, the hydrogen economy has received a lot of hype these days, but what exactly is it all about, and will it really work? Well, joining us today is a consultant in this field, uh, Mr. Lindsay Levine. Mr. Levine, thanks for joining us today on Berkeley Crocs. Oh, thanks for having me here. So first of all, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in the uh, energy arena? Well, I'm a South African, so I grew up in the sun, 
and came to the United States for graduate school and studied chemical engineering and then worked on uh, hydrogen plants in the late 70s for making hydrogen for petrochemicals and for the space program and then got out of that business in the 80s and got into chip manufacturing here in Northern California. But a couple years ago when I read so much nonsense and listened to so much on radio and TV and heard all these uh, so-called experts talking about it, I decided to do something about it and write a book about it. I believe it was last year that President Bush had proposed uh, spending, what was it, a couple billion, billion. couple billion dollars for the hydrogen economy. Does that make sense at all? No, it's not that he's wrong about the hydrogen economy. It's that everyone's wrong, Democrat or Republican, left-wing or right-wing. It doesn't matter. You, you listen to the news and you get guys like uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., and then you get Bill O'Reilly all saying we're going to have hydrogen vehicles. So it doesn't matter where people stand mm -hmm. politically. They're all sort of dreaming about this uh, lightest element in the universe saving the day, and it's not going to. So Bush got pretty poor advice, and um, it's basically a hoax. When we talk about hydrogen, uh, how exactly do these scientists propose that we use it? Is it used as a fuel, or is it used as some sort of uh, a medium? I think people are hoping it can be used as a fuel. The likelihood is it will be used as a chemical feedstock to synthesize other chemicals that are more uh, useful in terms of ease of use and ability to transport. What uh, is a fundamental to basic economics is that you make complicated things out of simple things and you make money. When you try and make simple things out of complicated things, you lose your money. And making the simplest element on Earth, or the simplest molecule in the case of the hydrogen molecule, is absolutely ridiculous when you think about that you started off with an expensive feedstock or chemical form. Even a hydrocarbon. Yeah, you know, hydrocarbon. Or an electrical form, meaning you're going to do electrolysis of water. The electricity itself was complicated and expensive. And that's precisely the problem, is you're making something really simple that is so rarefied, which is the opposite of dense, although our politicians are the opposite of rarefied, <laughs> and think you're going to be able to store this thing in abundant quantities on a mobile platform like a vehicle. How much energy would it take to produce the, uh, let's say, one kilowatt hour of actual hydrogen? Actually, if you're starting off with electricity or natural gas, mm -hmm. it's about 75% efficient in terms of thermal efficiency. Right. But in order to make the electricity, right. which typically comes out of coal in the United States because 55% mm -hmm. comes out of coal, that conversion of coal to electricity is maybe 30% efficient because we don't have combined cycle classification plants and coal. We typically just have thermal plants. So if you take the 30% times the 75%, you're about 22% efficient in making that hydrogen. You then put it onto a fuel cell, which itself is a damn expensive thing to make. But let's say the fuel cell can then be 70% efficient in converting the hydrogen at best. Mm -hmm. So you got 22 times 70%, you're down to 15% efficient compared to coal that you started off there in West Virginia or Wyoming. Oh, just stick with a locomotive. <laughs> you might as well stick it in a locomotive and go have the Indians shoot arrows at you. But basically what, what uh, you might as well do is burn gasoline in, in the worst American-made vehicles and they get about 15%. 
If you go and buy a good Japanese Toyota Prius, it's about 35-40% efficient, and it mm-hmm. makes much more sense to buy that and go 400 miles. Right. So when, when Arnie came into power here, and uh, he wanted to get this hydrogen highway, and he's the guy who drives around in Hummers, I wrote to him. Naturally, I didn't get a reply, but I said he'd have to change the name of the Hummer to a bummer when his thing only went 10 miles on a tank full of gas. So what about this whole idea of uh, coupling renewable energies with hydrogen production? Do you think that's realistic? Well, if you're sitting, like I grew up in Africa. If they had the capital and the money and they could afford it or the World Bank would give it to it, it makes sense some village in a remote part of Africa in the Kalahari Desert where there's no fuel for wood fires and stuff like that. Yeah, give the guy a windmill or a photovoltaic cell, give him some water that he can electrolyze and let him use the hydrogen as a cooking fuel or something to transport him two or three miles on a little uh, you know, scooter like we're buying from China now, that we have battery scooters. That makes sense, but it costs a lot of money. Trying to convert you know, my commute, which is totally ridiculous, from Marin County to Santa Clara County into some vehicle running on hydrogen is, is impossible. Now, I might be a criminal for commuting like that, But (laughs) that's unfortunately the way I make a living. And a lot of people commute. People commute from Tracy to Santa Clara. Indeed. Yeah, how are they going to do it? Uh, So what we have to have is much better mechanical engineering of our vehicles. Mm -hmm. And the Japanese aren't to it. And GM aren't because they're on the gravy train of this $2 billion you referred to of R&D for their their high-wire car, which is basically a a sort of skateboard platform, they claim, that doesn't have any real mechanical connections between the steering and the wheels and stuff like that because it's all drive-by-wire, and they think they're in a Boeing or a Phantom jet, but they're, they're in a dream. The combustion engine is definitely not the most optimized way of extracting energy. Uh, It's not the most optimized, but it's the cheapest. When you try and improve it, what you've got to do is improve the energy injection, the combustion, or the recovery of wasted energy. And so these hybrid vehicles is basically a method to optimize the performance of the engine. Now, a gasoline engine inherently is throttled. Right. So it gets worse uh, efficiency lower efficiency at lower load, right? whereas a diesel engine isn't throttled. And so people are also looking to mechanical engineering solutions of looking at uh, variable compression ratio engines or even rotary engines that may make a comeback, which have uh, possibilities of different compression ratios. So what efficiencies can we get with these engines? Well, diesel gets about 40% efficiency at its uh, peak loading. Mm-hmm. And diesel coupled with hybrid has been shown by MIT to be more green than a hydrogen fuel cell. That's pretty amazing. amazing. And I don't, I've researched that and found that out. So I think direct injected diesel with hybrid could easily approach 60% efficiency. And you'd wind up with 80 or 90 miles to the gallon on a car the size of, say, a Prius. Wow. And I think that's coming. Now, the other thing is that diesel is a suit-producing engine. 
historically. So we have to overcome the CERT, and CERT actually accounts for something like 30% of global warming, even though Kyoto never addressed it. So do you think it just requires better catalytic converters to... Yeah, there's, there, there's a British firm that has won some awards and has a pretty interesting idea, which is um, soot is basically incomplete combustion. Right, so it's a solid particle. It's suspended. a solid particle of carbon, right? right? And you also got nitrous monoxide, NO, mm-hmm. in incomplete combustion with nitrogen. So this British firm has come up with a platinum-based catalyst, pretty much like your catalytic converter on a gasoline engine, that converts the nitrogen monoxide with air to nitrogen dioxide. And nitrogen dioxide is a very strong oxidizer. Right. And then they react the nitrogen dioxide with the carbon soot, make nitrogen and carbon dioxide out of it, and get completely no soot coming out of this gizmo. And they're starting to use it on stationary and off-road large diesel things. The company's name is Johnson Matthey. And if you did a web search, you'd find out about this thing. Pretty incredible technology. So I, I like diesel. And I think hydrogen actually has a lot of potential in synthesizing diesel synthetically. Mm-hmm. Things called gas to liquids, which we're uh, investigating, where remote uh, countries like Equatorial Guinea have lots of natural gas at that country convert the natural gas, you basically partially oxidize the natural gas to synthesis gas, CO mm-hmm. and hydrogen, and then synthesize high cetane diesel, Right. and then let that country export the diesel to the United States and Europe, and to themselves, because they develop their own economy. Yeah. And uh, I think diesel synthesized, it's going to carry on for the next 100, 150 years. And all these proponents of this hydrogen economy are just lying and blowing hydrogen out both sides of their mouth. (laughs) (laughs) It does seem that hydrogen has many uh, problems in order to get to really work, if it can get it to work. What other alternative fuels uh, do you think are going to be important besides diesel? Let's say propane or... Propane, well, propane's naturally occurring, so it doesn't have as much abundance, say, as methane or it doesn't have as much abundance as coal or um, oil. But if you take propane um, for, like, developing countries as a cooking fuel, if you could distribute propane to remote villages in India, Brazil, Africa, and it stopped them from chopping down trees and burning wood inside their little mud huts, it could really solve the soot problem, because a lot of the soot emanates from that, and make these people's lives more healthy, so I would say if the World Bank wanted to spend money on something useful, mm-hmm. spend it on things like propane or kerosene that are good, clean-burning, relatively clean, but easy-to-burn fuel. Uh, propane basically is uh, C3H8, so there's 2.6 times as much hydrogen as carbon. Gasoline is about two hydrogens to one carbon, and the amount of CO2 you get is the relationship of how much carbon to hydrogen. Right. Uh, methane is great because it's four hydrogens to one carbon, and then coal is terrible because it's basically mostly it's carbon. carbon and it's got a bit of water in it. It's hardly got any hydrogen in it. So in the end, I think if we can burn fuels like propane and methane, mm-hmm. And in the United States, we're moving towards generating electricity with natural gas. Right. So inherently, that gives off less carbon dioxide per kilowatt hour produced than, say, a coal-fired. Yeah. Here's an interesting tidbit of information, because people 
would like to do sequestration of carbon dioxide. And a lot of people love biological sequestration. And, you know, a couple of power companies in the East Coast, like American Electric Power, pretending to grow forests in Costa Rica or some nonsense. I did a a carbon balance between one 1,000 megawatt power plant that burns coal, you know, just a basic uh, thermal plant, how much carbon it put out, and then how much carbon was taken up by the entire sugar crop of Cuba. Because sugar grows like weed and photosynthesizes more rapidly than most things. It's grown in the tropics, Mm -hmm. right? Well, it turned out that the one single power plant at 1,000 megawatts put out more carbon than the entire sugar crop of Cuba. So when these do-gooders say they're going to grow a few trees, it's a bunch of nonsense. (laughs) It's not going to solve our carbon problem. What about using the ocean as a sink for absorbing the carbon? You know, there's people who believe that. There's people who don't believe that. Um, I think the what what we can't wait around is to see if the ocean does it or doesn't do it, whether the, the next uh, ice age comes or doesn't come. We're just wasting our resources with equipment that is archaic and kind of criminal. And so, the, and the Japanese have had a society that essentially has been a sustainable society because of their predicament. There were a lot of people on a small island with not much resources. Mm -hmm. So they've been much more brilliant at using their minds to be conservationists. Likewise, the United States, which had a continent to go and had all these resources to waste, needs to wake up and realize there's a much more sustainable way to living. And whether, whether global warming is real or not real, we just are wasting so much energy and so many resources, and, and we could have a rich economy with, without waste. Are there any last words you'd like to add? I'd just like to say that, uh, you know, the human mind is pretty brilliant, and we went through most of our evolution and history using the equivalent of what I say is a TV hour, which is basically the power to power a tube TV for one hour. Your 2,000-calorie diet is about 24 TV hours. So mm-hmm. each day that you live, you're like one TV running or one 100-watt light bulb running. Right. And for most of evolution, we may be used up using our donkeys and horses and other things to help us twice that rate per person. But now we've got a skinny little lady in a Hummer as an example. Okay. <laughs> That Hummer, driven 15,000 miles a year, uses the equivalent of 550,000 TV hours of energy. So it's as if that that little lady in the Hummer has 70 TVs going 24 by 7 just to propel her the 15,000 miles. It's sort of crazy. So I think we have to explain to people that energy usage in, in, in terms that they understand has to be lessened. And they're not going to understand ergs and kilowatt hours and foot poundles and all these nonsensical units named after some engineer that died in Britain a hundred years ago. I think we all got to go explain it in TV hours. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. And we were just talking to Mr. Lindsay Levine on the hydrogen economy. In a few moments, we'll find out what nitrous oxide is. So stay tuned.
right, and now here's Esteban, the libido-loving Spaniard, with the answer to last week's question of the week. Well, thank you very much, my friend. Now it is here, Esteban, the Spaniard, with the answer to last week's question of the week. <laughs> thank you very much, there, Frank. You know, in Spain, we have many, many things. But if you want to live the life of the Spaniards, you have to live like a Spaniard. You have to eat like a Spaniard. And, of course, you have to love like a Spaniard. But sometimes it's very difficult for Spaniards to love all night long. So... We use the nitric oxide, which can be stimulated by many things, like Prozac. And that is how you love, like the Spaniard. Take it from me, Esteban, the loving Spaniard. Aye, aye, aye. <clears throat> and Yoda here with this week's question of the week. Difficult to speak English, yes, but something in my throat, it helps me. <clears throat> what is it? If you know what it is, or think you know what it is, email us at groks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, <clears throat> but you'll be able to sing a little louder. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.